Men, if you or uh, the, your wife or a woman in your life has sent you this message, hang tight with me. They sent it to you because I told them to. I got some good nuggets in here for you, and I want to encourage you and help you to find a greater sense of fulfillment and joy in your relationship. So just bear with me, all right? It's got something for you. Single people, this is a message on marriage, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have to do with you. The basic truths that we apply to our marriages are the truths all Christians should apply to their lives at every stage in life. Married people just get uh, more opportunities to apply it to somebody in their house more regularly. So single people, hang with me too. This message is as much for you as it is for those who are married. We are going to talk about marriage. And my hope uh, tonight is... In the title of the message, my hope is that tonight we can reclaim our marriage. Reclaim marriage. Uh, The title of my message is Reclaiming My Marriage. Somebody put that in the chat. I'm reclaiming my marriage tonight. Tonight marks the start of the time. I'm going to start reclaiming my marriage. I sound like Maxine Waters. I'm reclaiming my time. But we need to look at our definition of marriage, our understanding of marriage, and our expression of marriage, and we need to reclaim these things as according to what God's word says about these topics. Because there's a crisis of marriage in our culture. There's a crisis of it. In 2010, Newsweek ran an article. This is 11 years ago. So this has, I'm sure, has gotten much worse. 11 years ago, Newsweek ran this article called I Don't, The Case Against Marriage. Now, here's an excerpt for you. I'll read it to you. In our culture today, the idea of marriage has become so tainted and simultaneously so idealized that we're simply hesitant to engage in it. The baby boomers may have been the first children of widespread divorce, but ours is the generation for whom multiple households were the norm. We grew up shepherded between bedrooms, minivans, and dinner tables with step-parents, half-siblings, and highly complicated holiday schedules. You can imagine then, amid incessant, high-profile adultery scandals, that we'd be somewhat cynical about the institution. The question is not why fewer people are getting married, but why so many are still getting married. It's a lot. There's a lot in that. But we are reaping the effects of what we have sown as a culture and as a society. We have done exactly what we did in the garden when we took upon ourselves the responsibility of defining what is good and what is evil and then began to walk a lifestyle of corruption. We've done the same thing. We've took it upon ourselves to define the terms of love and of marriage and of relationship and of commitment. We've defined it for ourselves made it something that suits us, and we are now reaping what we've sown. Marriages that are broken, optional, when it's convenient, when I feel it, based on all the wrong things, not rooted in the truth of the God who invented the whole idea of marriage, who sent himself and gave us the example of himself. I'm going to love you the way a, a husband loves a wife. And we said, we want to define that for ourselves. No, thank you. And we are living in a society that has reaped what they've sown. Last week, Corey defined love for us. He 
message. This is love. If you missed it, please go back and watch it. It's going to help you for tonight. He talked about what love is tonight. I'm going to talk about what marriage is, and I want us to reclaim it because nobody else is going to do it for us. Nobody else is coming. No one else is coming. The church, we ought to be leading the way in this. You husband, you wife, you single person who maybe desires to be married one day, it's up to you. It's up to us. So we're going to do this together because if you're ever going to fight for something, if there's ever one relationship in your life that you should fight for, it's this one. It's the covenantal relationship you've entered in before God and before man with your spouse. If there's one you're going to fight for, fight for this one. And here's why. Because God's view of marriage is a radical, countercultural way of living that is a pure reflection of God's love for you. God's view of marriage is a radical, countercultural way of living that's a pure reflection of God's love for you. And who doesn't want that? Who hears that and says, nah, I'm good. I'm all right. I like, I like living in broken relationships. I like being selfish. I like fighting for what I want over what somebody else wants. Marriage is meant to be this microcosm of the gospel, this, this little display every day of mutual love, mutual submission, um, of, 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 of a radical devotion to somebody else and their radical devotion to you. And we get to experience it and walk in it daily. It's one of the most beautiful things we're given by God. But it doesn't come easy. It doesn't come easy. We've got to fight for it. We've got to be vigilant and we've got to reclaim it. So I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Very popular, very famous passage on marriage. I want to read Ephesians chapter 5, and we're just going to read, I think, just four verses um, because it's a lot. Just getting through four is a lot. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 25, and we're going we're to see if we can't reclaim something about our marriage today. Let me read it to you. It's on the screen as well if you'd like to follow along. Ephesians 5, verse 22 to 25. Wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wow, there's a lot right there. There's a lot right there. So let me pray, and then let's, let's talk about it, and let's see what it says to us. Father God, Holy Spirit, come and join us in this moment. Put your words in my mouth, and let me get out of the way, Father, that your truth would be spoken and received tonight. Father, may the transforming, life-giving power of Christ heal, resurrect, restore, and strengthen marriages tonight in Jesus' name. Husbands, I hope you're still watching. I got something for you. Most of us don't have a positive association with the word submission. Fair? Fair? You can throw it in the chat. Submit. Not really something I like doing. Don't really associate that with something that's good. But the whole idea of submission is tied to the character of God and how he relates to himself. We've got to understand this as a starting point. The whole idea of submission is tied to God's character and is revealed in the way that he interacts with himself. We believe in the Trinity, one God revealed to us in three persons, not three gods, not one God who takes three different shapes when he bounces back and forth between the Father and the Son. No, it's called modalism. It's not that. One God revealed in three persons. It's a mystery. You won't ever figure it out fully. And like Pastor Brett likes to say, and I agree, 
I'm okay with that. Because if I can fully understand my God, he's, he's probably not God. He's probably not big enough. But we have the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit. Okay, pop quiz. You can throw it in the chat if you want to, or just answer out loud to yourself. Are all three God? Yes, yes, I'll help you. Is any one of those three more God than the others? No is the answer. No, they're all, they're all God. So are they equally God? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are they equally God? Yes. Yes is the answer. Yes. So then can they submit to one another? Also yes. Does one submitting to the other make it less God? No. It doesn't. The biblical and godly view of submission has nothing to do with inequality. It has nothing to do with inequality. The son chooses to submit to the father. In John 5, verse 19, I'll give you just one example and then we'll move on from this, but I want to make sure we start in the right space here. John 5, verse 19, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Jesus' son submits to the father. I can only do what the father does. In John 12, 49, he says, I can only say the words that the father tells me to say. That's all I can do. In the garden at Gethsemane, he says what? Not my will be done. I'm putting myself under you, God, father. Not my will, but your will be done. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus do that? We'll finish verse 19 here. John 5, 19. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son. Why does Christ submit to the father? Because he trusts that the father loves him. He trusts that the father loves him. The biblical ideas of love and submission are tied together and they have nothing to do with inequality. When we trust in the love that somebody else has for us, that they're gonna care for us, provide for us, put our best interests in mind, watch over us, that their love is never ending to us, it becomes easy to prioritize that person and to put themselves above us. So let's reclaim some terms. Let's reclaim some terms before we reclaim our roles, before we reclaim our marriage. Love, let's start there. Love is not primarily a feeling. It's an emotion you can feel, but our culture has reduced this powerful, uh, uh, complex idea into emotion. I feel love for you or I do not. I will fall into it or I will fall out of it. That's up to you. It's not really up to me. You ought to make me feel good so that I feel love towards you. And that's just not a biblical view. And praise God, it's not. Because how often... Do you show God that you love him and obey him and will give up your life for him and that you trust him? And if he was a God ruled by his emotions, that would be not very good for us. He is driven by his love, but his love is not primarily an emotion. So then what is love? Love is a commitment to act for the well-being of another. Love is a commitment to act 
for the well-being of another. Love has to do with the actions that you perform that result out of a decision, a commitment to love somebody else. A commitment you've made should result in actions that you take. Love is a commitment shown through action. What is submit? Submission is not subservience. Submission is not servitude. It's not slavery. Submission is not being less than. That concept is not communicated to us in the Bible. The word submit means to put under, to put under, which is in other words is to say to put somebody above you, to prioritize their needs above your own. It's a choice that you make. Submission has to do with position, not worth. Submission has to do with your position, not with your worth, not with your worth. Love is a commitment shown through action, And because we choose to love, then we choose to put others above ourselves. We choose to to honor them. We choose to submit to them. And this applies to all of us. The biblical and godly view of submission has nothing to do with inequality. And the biblical and godly view of love has nothing to do with emotion. It's not where it starts. And that's where we have to start if we're going to understand marriage. Men, you still hanging with me? Hang with me. I'll get to you in a second. Uh, So who has to do this? Now, we love to jump right into 22 and start digging in our wives. Yeah, wives, you ought to submit to your husbands. That's what the word, but let's let's just hang on. Because here's some, I'm assuming you didn't know this, but verse 22 in Ephesians 5, it actually comes after verses 1 through 21. So just a nugget for you. You can write that down in your journal. Taught you something tonight. Uh, That's a joke. So let's look then at this prelude that Paul gives us in Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 21. And to make it super quick, let's just look at the first verse and the last verse. This is Paul writing a letter to the church in Ephesus. It's a a Roman city, and he's now talking about how we walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice. So what are we to do? What does Paul say we should do? We should be imitators of God. How do we do that? Well, it says it, by, by walking in, in love and giving ourselves up for one another. And who is Paul speaking to in the book of Ephesians? Everybody in Ephesus. Does that include husbands? It does. Does that include wives? Also yes. Let's look at verse 21. Ephesians 5, 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What are we to do? Submit. To who? One another. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. And again, who is Paul writing to? Everyone in Ephesus. Everybody. Does that include husbands? Yes. Does that include wives? Yes. We skip this. We skip this to get to our preference in 22 through 25, actually 22 through 33. But we've got to start here. Paul's going to get specific, but right now he's describing as Christ followers, what are we? We are a community of mutual love and mutual submission and mutual respect that honors one another, that prefers one another, that lays down our life for one another. This is what defines us as Christ followers. Does it define married people? Yes. Does it define single people? It does. Does it define divorced people? It does. It does. No exclusions apply here. This is what is to define us. Love is a commitment shown through action. Submission is to put somebody 
uh, to put ourselves under somebody else, to prioritize them above ourselves. It's a decision we make, not on our position, on our position, not on our worth. So we've reclaimed some terms. Let's reclaim some roles. In Ephesus, like I mentioned, this was a first century Roman city, okay? Roman society was incredibly and deeply patriarchal. It was. There was one man at the head of it all. There was a ruling class, and men were uh, worth more and valued higher in society. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just reporting facts to you. I'm just telling you what it was. Women and children and slaves were at the bottom. This is the culture Paul is writing to. Men would marry in their mid-30s after kind of making a name for themselves, making enough money to to purchase a bride. Again, I'm not saying this is the way it should be. I'm just saying this is the way it was. So, okay, we've got to read this. So I teach and discover discipleship, how to read my Bible. You've got to understand the context, the interpretation, and the application. We jump to application. Start with the context. Who are we writing to? Who is writing it? Interpretation. What did that author mean to the people he was writing to? And now what's the message for me? Men would marry in their mid-30s after acquiring wealth, acquiring a name for themselves so they, could, so they could pay the bride price for a young girl that was probably in her mid to late teens. Men did not do this out of love. He did not fall in love with this girl. He chose a wife so that she could bear him children and manage his household. That was the decision. That's what goes into it. Could he afford this? Again, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying you should do this. But this is who Paul is writing to. Paul is not describing, when he says these words, he's not describing Roman culture and he's not describing American culture. He is describing the culture of the kingdom of heaven and of the church of Jesus Christ. Where, if you remember, he writes in Galatians 3.28, here in the kingdom of heaven, here in the church of Christ, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. For you are all one. This is the context, what Paul is saying. So husbands, let's reclaim your role here. When Paul says, husbands, you are the head of your household, you are the head of your wife, this was shocking to nobody. In fact, this was so common, they probably glossed right over it in the letter. See, we get stuck there. Our society gets stuck there. Now, Paul is a a patriarchal, woman-abusing, male authoritarian. No, no, no. Paul is operating in the culture that he's in. Men were the head of the household. That's like Paul saying, Ephesus, the sky is blue. Okay. Okay. But what he says next is what's radical. The sky is blue, and now you should go fly up there. Wait, what? What Paul says is this. Men are the head, and how should they be the head? As Christ, as Christ is the head. You've got to remember again, Christ was totally opposite of everybody's expectations. They thought they were going to a military ruler, a great politician, a great leader, and they got a man who called himself a shepherd and called his followers the sheep, and he laid his life down for them. He avoided the religious elite. They thought he was going to come in and take over. 
He went to the sick and the broken. He was the opposite of our instincts. Hear me, men. As the male leader of your household, you ought to be the opposite of your instincts. We're going to get there in a minute. But you should expect that what I am instinctively bent towards doing to be a reflection of Christ, I probably, I probably shouldn't do those things because Jesus subverted all of our expectations. He came not to be served, but to serve. This is a leadership lesson. This is a freebie. Matthew 20, 25 through 28, Jesus' words, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. The vision of leadership that they had was that we exercise our authority over the people. We lord over them. We control them and we dominate them. What is Jesus' words? It shall not be so among you. Our vision of leadership that Christ gives us is not to dominate and exercise authority. But what? Continue reading on. Whoever would be great should be your servant. He who would be first must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve. So when Paul says, men, be the head of the household, the way that Christ is the head of the church, what he's saying is this, love her, serve her. Lay your life down for her. Prefer her above yourselves. Give yourself up for her completely. Do you understand that to a Roman gentleman, this is radical and offensive. This is upside down. Paul's words are not reaffirming male patriarchy. They're undermining it. They're cutting the knees off of it. This idea that I'm a male, I have more worth, I'm the leader, I'm in charge, submit to me, woman. Paul's saying, oh, you're the head, but be the head as Christ is the head. Go to the cross for her. Love, love her. Love this woman. Love this woman. Not because you feel like it. Not because she does anything for you. Do we do anything for God? And yet Christ laid his life down for us. Men, this is what headship looks like. We need to reclaim the idea of headship in our marriage. We need to reclaim it. We need to take it back. We ought to be the head like Christ is the head. Love our brides the way that Christ loved his church. Love is a commitment expressed through action. Like Pastor Corey told us last week, it's marked. Love is marked by self-sacrifice. If you're not sacrificing of yourself, you are not expressing love to your spouse or anybody else in your life. It's the word of God. Let me say it another way. Let me say it another way. Husbands, this, this part's just for you. Your role as leader in the household is not an honor that she owes you. It's a responsibility that you carry. Your role as head of the household is not an honor that your wife owes you. It's a responsibility that you carry. You see, honor is given. You can't extract it from somebody. Honor is given. Respect is earned. Your role here is to walk in a manner worthy, to carry the responsibility. I love when we describe leadership as the mantle, the mantle of leadership or the yoke of leadership because it implies weight. We have made leadership this idea of, of, of honor, of, of, of ease, of they've attained this level and so we just give them whatever they want and the leader gets all the love and he gets all the glory and he gets all the goodness. But if you've ever led anything, you know that it comes with a tremendous amount of weight. 
And so men, Paul is saying, put on the mantle of leadership in your house. Make a covering under which your wife can thrive spiritually. She can thrive emotionally. She can feel protected, secure, loved, worth, value, her identity reaffirmed because you are carrying the weight that God has deemed you ought to carry. And the trick here is that it's far more weight than any one man can carry alone. It's far more weight than any one man can carry alone. But it is what God has deemed for you to carry. Love her. Bring her under the umbrella of your leadership so that she can blossom and thrive and achieve the full purposes that God has anointed and graced her for. Are you loving your wife in a way that she knows there's nothing she could do to lose your love? Pastor Corey talked about this chesed love. This commitment, faithful, covenant love, not based on your actions or your responses to me, but based on a decision that I have made, decision that God has made. I will love you. I shall be your God. You shall be my people. What do we say at the altar? I shall be your, I mean, we should say it this way. I shall be your husband and you shall be my wife. But what do we say? To love and to honor in sickness and in health, in richer and in poorer, for better or for worse, till death do us part. That's a vow you made. That's a covenant you took before God. The weight, gentlemen, is on your shoulders. Do you love your wife in a way that she never has to question whether she can lose your love or not? Women, I'm, it's your turn. Men, I'm going to chew on that. We're going to think about that. We're going to internalize that. Um, your husbands or the men in your life or maybe your future husband, if you're, if you're not there yet but you're preparing, your husband will fail at this. He will. It is far more weight than any one man can carry on his own. The responsibility of loving like Christ loved, I mean, just remember that. Even Jesus in the garden was like, God, let this pass. It's too hard. It's too hard. I know there's some husbands out there right now going, Pastor, it's too hard. It's too hard. Lord, let this cut pass from me. This is not an option that we get. Jesus didn't get that option. We don't get that option either. So wives, your husbands will fail you at this. They will let you down. The question is this. What will you do when that happens? How will you respond? Nagging, criticism, I told you so. You know, Pastor said you are... Or do you come under him? Do you put yourself under him and remember the mantle that he is charged with carrying in your role? God says, let me make a what? A helpmate. Let me make a helper suitable for him. Why? Because we need help. It's too much weight for us to carry on our own without your encouragement, without your prayers, without your affirmation, without you saying, yeah, man, you got this. I love the way you lead us. I know we haven't prayed together for 14 straight days, but I love your leadership. I, want, I, just, I know you got a lot at work, man. I always have your back. Are you cultivating an environment on which your husband can carry this weight easier? But the tension is written right into our DNA. In Genesis 3.16, God diagnoses us perfectly. He says to the woman, your desire will be contrary to your husband. 
and he shall rule over you. Your desires are going to be contrary to your husband, and he's going to rule over you. Just mentally, women, raise your hand if that's you, if you've been there. I know I'm supposed to respect him. I know I'm supposed to submit to him. But, man, he just doesn't know what he's doing, and I can do it better. And if he would just let me do it, he would see. And and, and his decision-making is a little bit suspect. What is that? Our desires are contrary. So what does God do? He gives us a gracious prescription in this passage from Paul. Women, our natural bent, well, yours, is towards ruling over your husband, controlling him, dictating the terms. And what does Paul say? What does God say? How do we combat that? Choose to put yourself under. Choose a different way. It's just true for men. As our instincts make us want to make one decision, we realize that God has subverted all expectations. Our instincts are not right. So when, when we feel like we ought to do this, we ought to, that ought to be the moment where we pause. And we say, what's, what's the opposite of what I want to do? That's probably what, probably what Christ would do. God diagnoses Eve in the garden because um, what does Eve do wrong in the garden? What does Eve do, do wrong in the garden? She took control of the decision. She took control of the situation. She didn't consult God. She didn't consult her husband. She said, I know enough in this moment to make this decision on my own authority. I will do this. I will make this decision for us. And it's led to our mutual destruction. But what was Adam's fault in the garden? Not that, you know, it was all women's fault. What was Adam's fault in the garden? We have no reason to believe Adam was far away. What was Adam doing? He was abdicating his responsibility is what Adam was doing. He was not where he needed to be. He was not leading in a way that his wife felt the security to know, I can trust my husband with these things. In fact, it was opposite. Adam followed her lead. Because he was not fulfilling the role God had marked out for him. He's both at fault. See, women will tend to want to control the man. But men, we have another problem. Ours is a little bit more complicated. We're either either, either too aggressive or we're too passive. Some men have a natural bent towards aggression and dominance. I'm going to take the respect you ought to be giving me. And if you don't, I'm going to raise my voice. I'm going to puff out my chest. Like that's something to a woman who you're supposed to love and protect. Okay, great. You're very manly. Wonderful. But we're way too aggressive. We want to dominate the situation. When we don't get our way, we're going to throw a temper tantrum and stomp our little feet and wah, 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 and try to control our wives and scare her into doing what we want her to do or our children or whatever it is for you. And what is God's gracious prescription? Men, how do you overcome that? You love her the way Christ loved her. You die to yourself. You die to your timelines you die to the, your idea of how everything should be done. You die to this desire of control and, and, and dominance and, and I need to take the respect. And if you don't give it to me, I'm gonna... T- we lay our life down. We lay our life down for her. Not because she makes us feel some kind of way, but because we vowed an oath before God where we said, this is what I will do. Wanna be a man of your word? Live up to the vow that you took. 
On the other hand, we have men who are far too passive, far too passive. We defer everything and we just let life go before us. We don't make decisions. We don't step up to the game. We don't, we don't own it. Problems in our marriage, we just say, what am I going to do, man? It's really her. This is what Adam was doing. It's not, it's not really me. I mean, she can just whatever. We got decisions we need to make and we won't make them. We want somebody else to make them for us. And we just let things go before us. And we never step into the role that God has appointed and declared, you are the head. Man, this is on you. The responsibility for the health of your marriage, men, is yours and yours alone. You can't abdicate that. You can't let that pass before you. No one else is coming. No one else is going to save your marriage but you. You have a mantle of leadership on your shoulders that God is calling you right now. Step up into that. Stop being afraid. Stop being weak. Stop being passive. This is the most important relationship in your life. Would you lay your life down for her? This is my daughter I'm talking about. Would you love her like I've loved her? We just want to look at the problem. And we want to blame somebody else for the problem. But when I look through the history of Scripture, I see a God who looks over humanity. People he created out of love. And he says, is there, is there none righteous? Is there there even one who will intercede on my behalf? The Lord's eyes are searching the earth for just one. Is anybody coming? And when he realizes no one is coming, he comes himself. He comes himself because he has declared and decided that he loves you. And the responsibility is on him. The only one that can do it is him. We look at our relationships. We look at our children. We look at our families. We look at whatever and we say, is anybody going to apologize first? Is anybody going to change their behavior? I mean, I'll, I'll forgive her as soon as she asks for forgiveness. But until then, I mean, what am I going to do? No one else is coming. Reclaim your marriage Step into the high calling that God has called you to. Put the burden of leadership back on your shoulders. Sit back in your seat as the head of the household, as the one who sets the tone of your marriage and of your relationship. Wear it, because that is what God has declared for you. Wives, please send this message to your husband. Make sure that they see it. Make sure that they hear it and tell them, I told you to do it. Okay, it's okay. They won't get mad at you. God outlines for us this beautiful picture of mutual love and mutual submission, this back and forth of grace that as I provide leadership and covering in a healthy environment to my wife, she thrives in that. She feels valued in that. She feels worth in that. Her identity is reaffirmed. And so what does she do? She wants to help me do what I do. And when she gives this to me, oh, that makes me feel great. And I feel empowered by that. And I feel, feel loved by that. And so what, what does that make me want to do? That makes me want to create this covering even broader and love her better and create more space for her. And it's this beautiful back and forth of grace. But someone has to step in first. Someone's got to step in first. 
This is what God did as he surveyed the world and saw that none were righteous. So he said, I'll do it. I'll do it. This is what marriage, this is what marriage is. This beautiful, radical, countercultural display of God's love for us. It's written into your heart. It's written into your DNA. We just have to take it. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the expression of covenantal love through all scripture. We thank you as husbands and as wives for the challenge that this presents us every day, a new moment to freshly apply the gospel to ourselves and to our spouse. We can't do it by ourselves, though, God. So Holy Spirit, empower us. Help us, like Paul writes, to take off the old self and put on the new self. Help us to walk empowered by the Spirit of God to overcome our pride, our selfishness, our frustration or our anger or whatever it is, our insecurities, God. And I just pray right now for the marriages that are hurting, for the men who have abdicated their seat. Holy Spirit, would you breathe a fresh wind on these men? Let them know that you have called them, you have placed them, and you have trusted them. You have made them the man for the job. And may today be a day where they act and they step up into that. They lay down their pride and they extend the first hand. Father, I pray for the wives who are watching and the women who are single and the men who are single who who are waiting for this, God. But I pray for a grace to be upon them whereby they can lift, encourage, support, promote their husbands in a way that is totally countercultural because they haven't been treated in a way that that he deserves that. But God, out of their love for you, they're going to do something radical and countercultural. Father, help us take off the old and put on the new. In Jesus' name, amen.